following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Well, welcome everybody. I'm not going to say good morning. You guys are already past that. Pastor Carnes probably already said good morning in the first service. Um, I just want to thank you for being here today. I know that this is a little bit out of the norm. I know that uh, typically we don't have uh, combined fellowship groups like this except for missions conference. Uh, so I know that this is a little bit outside of, of uh, some of your comfort zones. Um, but uh, I'm so thankful that we are able to be uh, together. And i um, happy to see everyone here. I want you to know off, uh, up front that the primary purpose of this time is really this one thing. If you walk away with anything. It is to promote greater unity and interconnectedness at, in our, at our church on two fronts. First of all, uh, I really envision this being a time for us here of mutual fellowship and encouragement. That as you look around the room right now, you see people, some familiar faces, but there might be unfamiliar faces. And so maybe even after uh, our time together, uh, my hope is that you would uh, find somebody that you haven't talked to before, that you haven't met and that you would make an effort to, uh, to reach out to that person. All right? So I hope that this provides you an opportunity to do that. And then secondly, uh, I really want this time to be a time of promoting unity and, and interconnectedness by way of refocusing on some common goals for our, our church fellowship groups. Notice what I said, refocusing on some common goals. Uh, that is not to say that anything that we're going to cover here is going to be new from right field. All right? I recognize that, and frankly, if there was something that I say here that's going to be something original, then we have problems up here, right? Maybe I shouldn't be up here, all right? So this is a time of refocusing on some common goals that we would like to see uh, grow and be enhanced in our current uh, uh, Sunday fellowship groups. Because um, if you're like me, I think that you would, you would admit that it's very easy to get distracted, it's easy to allow secondary matters to cloud essential matters. Even in our, in our homes, we can experience that. If we're not constantly bringing ourselves back to what are our common goals and what are we about, then very easily, inadvertently even, you can begin to go wayward and maybe not be emphasizing the, the right thing. All right? So my, my goal in our teaching time, this is part one of two Sundays, as, as you know. In this first uh, part here, First of all, I want to remind us of the importance and nature of what Christian fellowship is. The importance and nature of Christian fellowship. And thus, why it is crucial that every believer at Calvary be plugged into a fellowship group. We should strive for that. There are exceptions. Children's ministries and people serving in youth. There are those exceptions. But we don't want people dating the church. Amen? We don't want people thinking that in an hour and 15 minutes or an hour and a half in a main service, that that equals life-on-life discipleship, and that's what it, what it means to follow Christ, to just show up to that one hour and a half. Okay? Secondly, this morning, I want to remind us of some biblical priorities that I think we're called to have if we're going to have fellowship groups like these. I call these fellowship group essentials, and we're going to work through three of those and probably just go through the first one uh, today. 
Um, these are essentials that at least in function amidst all of our activity, it's easy to lose sight of these if we're not careful. Thus, we need to be reminded of them. We need to be reminding each other of these uh, biblical principles and what we want to be seeing in our fellowship is in our gathering together. So this first part, I really want to delve into a little bit of the importance of biblical Christian fellowship and what that means. And then we're going to get into the first uh, essential. All right. Now, over the years, I have had a lot of conversations with pastors and and just because of the nature of what God had me doing before, I got a chance to interact with a lot of churches, right? Here in America and in other places. And it was a privilege to do that. And the biggest thing was that I gathered from a lot of these pastors was they, they kept scratching their heads about the, the lack of involvement or a core group of people in their churches. People just kind of coming in and out and not really being involved in the life of the body. I have a particular passion for the body life dynamics, I love seeing people assimilated into the body of Christ. People come in, uh, the, this process of getting Christians plugged into the life of the church. And in interacting with a lot of these uh, uh, pastors and lay leaders, they were all many times very discouraged about the fact that people were not really plugged into the life of the church. And would you believe that on average, on average, based upon my experience in over 100 churches in Southern California primarily and then and then in a little bit in Texas and even some international, on average, would you believe that in these churches less than 30%, 30 to 35%, less than 30 to 35% of the membership of those churches was actually, were actually what they would refer to as a, the core group. Less than 35% of the people of the membership, we're not talking about people who were visiting, of the membership were uh, plugged in to the life of the body. That means that, that mo, uh, few people were doing most of the work. Few people were the ones that were personally interacting with each other and serving and loving each other uh, on the level of using their gifts and their abilities and building each other up. Does that shock you? Would you believe that in our beloved Calvary Bible Church, the last stat that we saw, and again, the exception would be the children's ministries, and, and people in the, in the uh, youth ministries, would you believe that less than 40% of our membership at Calvary are actually plugged in to fellowship groups? Less than 40%. That's approximate numbers. How many of you were kind of aware a little bit of that stat about our Calvary Bible Church? Yeah, almost half of you. And I submit to you, beloved, that just as I was, as I have interacted with some of these pastors and lay leaders in the past, and even even watching the life of our church here, that a lot of this ties back to people's very superficial understanding of what biblical Christian fellowship means. Inevitably, the conversation when I'm talking to people always goes back to the significance and the nature and the meaning of what we talk, what we mean when we talk about fellowship. I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what that means. So before talking about these fellowship group essentials, I thought it necessary to spend some time talking about what the Bible means by Christian fellowship. Because when we talk about Christian uh, a fellowship and we use that term, many of us mean very different things by, by when we define that. And just in the quietness of your own heart, I wanted to get some interaction in here 
but because of the size of the group, we won't do that. But just in the quietness of your own heart, think about what are some of the common misconceptions about what people understand fellowship to mean? Maybe in your own personal experience, maybe as you've interacted with others, what are some of the common misconceptions? Because I think there's a lot of confusion And by and large, what I've gathered is that when people speak of fellowship, they usually speak of fellowship in a social or relational sense. Would you agree with that? There's a social or relational sense. We talk about fellowship as gathering together, spending time together, hanging out. There's a social aspect. It's largely defined by the times when we hold potlucks or it's event-driven or spending times in various homes. And this type of activity, spending time in each other's homes and potlucks and all of those things, are very good and profitable, are they not? I am a huge proponent of get-togethers and potlucks. Right? Somebody told me the other day, why do you always like meetings? Crying out loud. You're like, Every, everything's a meeting with you. I'm like, I love it. I love being around other people. So I love those get-togethers. But I think that if we just relegate fellowship, or just, we, we define fellowship as just that activity, just to, with the social component, then we are really not understanding that fellowship is a lot more, is deeper and more profound than we can even imagine. Amen? It really is. Those activities are, are good. They're to be encouraged and commended. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 to 25, remind us of the importance of not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. And all the more, he says, as we see the day drawing near, we should be getting together, spending time together. It is important to do that. However, even these wonderful activities, if you stop and think about it, are not at the root of what the Bible refers to as fellowship. Think about this for a minute. If those activities, in and of themselves, are what we define as fellowship then what makes Christian fellowship any different than gatherings like Alcoholics Anonymous or secular groups getting together? They're hooking up. They're creating teamwork. They are they're spending time together. I had an opportunity to work for CHF, Children's Hunger Fund, and there were constantly ga- constant gatherings of social groups that were committed to social justice, caring for the needy and the poor. Some were even committed to, to wanting to end hunger and poverty, which you can never do on this earth in a fallen world. But they would get together to do this. I've coached my, my kids, uh, uh, coached my, my kids' soccer teams. And there's this parent-run organization called AYSO that's commit these parents that are that are hooking up getting together gathering together to create the best possible soccer league that their kids can enjoy and where they're going to learn the, the skills and abilities that soccer players should know so my point is that christian fellowship is not limited to people spending time together as the end goal of the gathering Again, there's nothing wrong, and we're going to talk about this, with people spending time, hanging out, having fun. But I think we would agree that there is a greater purpose for Christians gathering together. Amen? There's a greater purpose. Isn't that the case even with secular, uh, secular organizations? Um, if you're talking about uh, an AA meeting, Alcoholics Anonymous, people are getting together with the goal, right, of ceasing to drink... And so they're seeking to find comfort and support in one another in a common pursuit of that goal. It goes above and beyond just a gathering, even in an organization like that. 
When you're talking about social work, uh, organizations committed to social justice, why are they getting together? Even though they might not agree on every intricate detail of how to do their ministry, they're getting together because they want to relieve or end hunger or poverty. They have a common goal or purpose. And in a much more significant way, is this not the case with believers? We have a greater, infinitely greater purpose, as we talked about last Sunday morning in the main service. A greater purpose. There is something more profound, deeper, that binds us together, that drives those activities, that drives the Christian, the, 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 the potlucks, and the being around one another, and that longing. See, beloved, I believe that, first of all, Christian fellowship is much more than gathering for gathering's sake. Unlike AA meetings and social justice partnerships or AYSO parent meetings. And second, I believe that for true Christian fellowship to exist, there must be an understanding, a sharing and participating of a common goal or purpose. And for us, it's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, is it not? That's our common goal or practice. We are aiming at the same target, though it might look very different for each of us in our particular context of life. And I want to be clear, because I don't want you to walk out of here saying, oh, Pastor Kempis, he doesn't really like hanging out. You do not want to say that, because I love hanging out. He, he's, he's downplaying the importance of, of Christians hooking up together and, and, and these potlucks that we have. Absolutely not. I'm not saying that. Listen, to be clear, Christian fellowship is expressed very tangibly, practically in social relationships, things like social gatherings, spending time, hanging out. Those activities are wonderful and are very profitable. But listen, social relationships are really the byproduct of a greater, more profound reality that exists in our Christian fellowship. Spending time doing fun things are the byproduct or the result of a deeper reality that has, has occurred if you are a believer this morning. It's a beautiful thing. If you treasure relationships here in the body of Christ as a believer, people that you know in this body are important to you, then recognize that there's something that binds you so much deeper. And I want us to talk about that and be reminded of this anew. When you come to know Christ, you were brought into this union with Christ and with other people. We are one church. We are one church. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen this beautiful statement to the Corinthians, For by one Spirit we were all baptized or immersed into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Isn't that precious? We are united. The Spirit of God has immersed us into one living, vibrant organism called the church. We are one. As Christians, we are in fellowship with God through Christ and with one another. That's a beautiful reality. And when you, so you, when you think of God's church throughout this week, spend some time praising God for the truth that you and I as believers are interconnected so, so beautifully. To Christ Jesus first and foremost, almost in, like in a triangle with Him at the top, you on one side of that triangle and other believers on the other. You are intricately connected to other believers. There is a oneness that we share. 
I mean, think about some of the metaphors used in Scripture to describe this oneness, to describe the people of God and this, this common life that we ought to be sharing. They refer to the church as a building, a body, a field. We are co-laborers. We are co-workers. We are fellow workers. We are a holy temple. We are this living, vibrant organism. All of these metaphors describe the people of God and emphasize interconnectedness, oneness, partnership that we share. There's this profound reality that makes our fellowship possible, beloved. And that is the indestructible oneness that we share in the gospel. That is the oneness that Paul talked about in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Pastor Carnes went through that passage. Christ is our peacemaker. He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, the greatest wall that ever existed between two peoples, Gentiles and Jews. He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. That in himself, in Christ, he might make the two into one new man, right? One. One new man. And thus establish peace. Christ is the peacemaker. He establishes peace. And so when Paul gets to Ephesians chapter 4, and this transition, he says in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Remember that? We don't create peace. Christ has established peace. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. He is the peacemaker. We are diligent to preserve the unity that He's already established. See the difference? We are in fellowship with one another. You're stuck with me for life. Like, oh, Lord willing, heaven forbid. We're, we're stuck with each other. If you're a believer, we're one. We're a family. We've heard that said many times from the mouth of Pastor Tim Carnes. We are one. There's this indestructible unity that we share that's unbreakable with Christ and with one another. So this is very foundational for us to be reminded of this, this oneness so that we might... might See fellowship in, in a, the greater depth of what that particular word means. Christian fellowship has to do with the sweet truth of the gospel, transforming your heart and life, and bringing you into this beautiful union relationship with God in Christ Jesus. When you come to know Christ, Paul in Philippians chapter 3 says this in verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, he says, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. We, if you're a believer, you've entered into this beautiful, personal, experiential, intimate relationship with the living Christ. It's not about cognitive information that you might have about Jesus. You might have a lot of verses that you know about Christ. The question is, do you know Christ? Have you experienced a, a relationship with Christ? Do you know Him intimately and personally? If you do, then you are in union with Christ. And other believers share that union with you who have a vibrant, personal, experiential relationship with Christ. Isn't that beautiful? We're all interconnected together. I put this passage on, your, uh, on one side of your little hand out there. 1 John. And I want to read it. This is what 1 John chapter 1 and verse 2 says. Just putting it in context here. And the life was manifested. And we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too, here it is, may have fellowship 
with us. There's that word koinonia, fellowship. It has the idea of a partnership, a participation, a sharing of something together. He says, we write about this personified Christ, everything that He did and everything that He said, so that you too may have koinonia with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. You see that? This beautiful triangular relationship with Christ at the top, you on the other side, and others on the other side. Listen, beloved, that is our identity. That is the root of our fellowship, our bond that we share together. The relationship that we have with Christ and with other people. And that identity then, that understanding of the fact that Christian fellowship is rooted in the gospel and a personal relationship with Christ and with other people in Christ leads to action. The more you understand the reality of your union with Christ and with other believers, the more there will be expression in your life. Loving relationships with other people will will take shape. There is a sweet partnership that we share. And I want you to see that as we understand that, that Christian fellowship is rooted in the reality of the gospel and our union with Christ, the more we understand that, the more it will show itself in the way that we live and the way that we interact with one another. And I want to show you this, all right? Go to Philippians chapter 1. We've been going through this in, in the Procopane, the book of Philippians. And I just want to show you how Paul in Philippians expresses his gratitude and his love for these believers because of the fact that he shares this koinonia, this fellowship in the gospel. I want you to see this. Chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 3. Paul is in the midst of this thanks, is beginning this thanksgiving uh, letter for these Philippians, and then prays for them in verses 9 through 11. And notice what he does in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, he says to the Philippians. It's been almost 10 years since the birthing of this, of this, this little congregation. And Paul says, whenever I think about you, I have fond memories of you, and there's gratitude in my heart, and there's thanksgiving to God. And this thanksgiving in verse 3, upon remembering these Philippians, verse 4 drives Paul to this always offering prayer for them. Not reluctantly, with joy. He thinks about these believers and he offers prayer for them with joy, with every kind of prayer. He says, in my every prayer for you all, he petitions for these believers. He thanks God for them. He is constantly petitioning for their needs. And skip over to verse 6. Then he expresses to these Philippians his confidence in their, in their, their maturity. He says, for I am confident, verse 6, of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He says, I have this confidence, not because you're perfect people and because you don't have any sin, but because my confidence is in the fact that the God who brought you to himself will perfect his work in your life until the very end. How beautiful is that? So Paul expresses this confidence thanksgiving, prayer, confidence, fond memories of them. And then he expresses his love for them in very graphic terms in verses 7 through 8. He, 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 he talks to them in ways that maybe some of us would be very uncomfortable speaking to one another this way. Verse 7, For it is only right for me to feel this way, to have this confidence that he spoke of in verse 6. Because I have you in my heart. You're here. 
Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. That word partakers there is that same word koinonia with another little word attached to it. You can translate it co-fellowshippers of grace with me. You're co-fellowshippers of grace. But I have you in my heart. Verse 8, For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, with with the inward parts of my very being. That was a strong way of communicating intense love in those days. I I have this affection for you. Beloved, what motivates that kind of koinonia, that type of expression in the life of Paul and his relationship with the, with the Philippian believers. I submit to you verse 5. He says in verse 5, In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Participation, the same word, koinonia. The sharing, partaking, this partnership that he shares with the Philippians in the gospel. See where the root of his expression of love and his thanksgiving and his prayers and his interaction with the Philippians flows from? This understanding of the fellowship and the koinonia that he has with them in the gospel. And we don't have time to go through the whole rest of the book of Philippians. But Paul constantly, and in, in now calling them to preserve this unity, to not allow the beginning signs of strife to exist among them, amongst them and division, he keeps pointing to the reality of the gospel. And this togetherness for the sake of the gospel. And this oneness striving together for the sake of the gospel. Unless we understand that the gospel progress is the greater reality for why we, were, we are here, and that's the root of our fellowship, then we won't want to really be around each other very much. Right? This is a sweet fellowship in the gospel that we share and will be treasured and will find expression, as in Paul with the Philippians, in our own personal interaction with one another. See, my point is this. As we strive to understand the ground or the basis of our fellowship as being in the gospel, then spending time with other believers, beloved, will be seen very, very differently and not so superficially as we tend to see it. Being around other people many times is very burdensome for some of us. And I just don't get it right now. Either, if you have a superficial understanding of what fellowship means... Either, one, your sense of identification with other believers will be a very self-centered one. When you are around other believers, you will show up only when it is beneficial for you. You will show up to gatherings complaining about all that is not provided for you. That will be you characteristically. If you have a superficial understanding of what Christian fellowship means. It will always be about you. It will always be about taking, taking, taking and not giving anything back using your gifts for the building up of other people. That is based upon a very superficial understanding of body-life dynamics and the fellowship that we have with God in Christ Jesus and with other people. Or, if you have a superficial understanding of Christian fellowship, you will neglect or avoid people altogether. You won't really be around. Because you don't understand that being part of the body life is not optional. It is, it is part and parcel essential for your Christian maturity and growth. Amen? Amen. Amen. You're going to be sitting there wondering, how long do I need to be here before I can have my own time at home? 
This is, this, is, this is really challenging me here. This is very uncomfortable. Or you will shoot off to go home right after corporate worship every Sunday. Characteristically. I'm not talking about doing that when there are things that take place. When there are life activities happening. I'm talking about if this is the pattern of your life. It is based upon, beloved, I submit to you, a, a superficial understanding of Christian fellowship and what the Bible says about it. A fundamental misunderstanding of what it means. So this failure to understand biblical fellowship will either lead us to self-centeredness around others or we will avoid to be around the body consistently and not, not hold those times with a very high value. So biblical Christian fellowship has more depth than we realize, doesn't it? It really does. Christian fellowship is not, listen to me, at its core, simply gathering together for gathering's sake for social reasons. Secular organizations do that. It is not you coming for moral support with all the problems in your life, and we come in, you come in, and we have to sit there and fix your problems. Or worse, not tell you anything about how you're responding to your issues in your life. That is not biblical love, is it? Loving each other genuinely and listening to each other and really getting a good gauge for where you're at and then addressing those problems biblically and sharing struggles, that is a very good thing. It is not just a venting session that defines Christian fellowship, right? Christian fellowship is not grumbling and complaining together about circumstances. It is not event or program focused. It is gospel focused. That's what Christian fellowship is. Amen? It is gospel focused. And I have on your little sheet there, I have come up with a definition for you in, a, in an effort to be helpful this morning of what Christian fellowship is. And you can edit that. You can strengthen it. It's not infallible. You can certainly add to that and strengthen it. Right? Christian fellowship, listen, is rooted in and motivated by the gospel. That's where it starts. That's my whole point up, to, up until this, this moment here. Christian fellowship is rooted in and motivated by the gospel, our union with Christ, our understanding of that intimate relationship with Him, and therefore that intimate relationship with other believers that we call the body of Christ. And then, once we understand that, the second part here is, it will find expression, as we looked at from Philippians, and finds expression or expresses itself in the mutual sharing of and participating in one another's lives. It will find expression in the mutual sharing of and participating in one another's lives. Listen to me, beloved, beyond Sunday mornings. That's why I don't like the term Sunday schools. It carries certain connotations. It sends a message sometimes to some people that it's all about a one-day event. And you come here, you get it all that you, all you need, and then you go home and we'll see you next Sunday. That is not Christian fellowship. That is not what we've been called to. So this expresses itself in the mutual sharing of lives and participating in one another's lives. And then thirdly here, whereby believers mutually care for and encourage one another primarily by means of the Word of God and prayer. Whereby specifically believers are mutually caring for and encouraging one another by means primarily of the Word of God and prayer. And there's a goal. 
with the common goal of growing into conformity to Christ as individuals and as a corporate body. With the common goal of growing into conformity to Christ as individuals and as a corporate body. This beautiful fellowship is precisely what we desire as your shepherds for each and every one of you. We desire that there would be this ongoing life-on-life discipleship between you and other believers that would go above and beyond Sunday mornings, beloved. We desire that you would learn more and more to mutually care for and encourage one another as you seek to grow in conformity to Christ individually and as a corporate body. The more we understand the profound nature of the sweet, intimate, personal communion that we share with Christ and with one another, the more that we will see assimilation in the life of the body, listen to me, less of a needed duty and more of a delight and a blessing. Right? The more we understand that, the more it would be a delight. The less optional it would become. You will recognize that you need the body of Christ. You need other believers around you to impact you, to spur you on to love and good deeds. So listen to me. The main event... Of, of our week as believers, the main event is the corporate worship service. I love corporate worship. We get in there, there's the, the singing of songs together, exalting the name of God. There's the public reading of Scripture. There are men who get up there and edify us by the things that they say. There is singing There is communion sometimes. We see baptisms and the public proclamation of what God has done in somebody's life. That is the main event. And within that main event, the main event is the preaching of the Word of God. Amen? Like, Ian, let us. Oh Lord, reveal to us Your glory through the preaching of Your Word so that every heart confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. The main event of our main service is the proclamation of the Word of God. That is when God speaks beautiful that is every single one of you need to be there first and foremost but can i say this it doesn't end there simply showing up for an hour and a half into the main sanctuary and characteristically as a pattern of your life not being involved in anything else not identifying yourself with a fellowship group a core group of people who are going to be getting to know you building a relationship with you and vice versa using their gifts to build you up and vice versa Not doing that shows a very superficial type of Christianity and a superficial understanding of what fellowship means, beloved. Amen? Amen. Amen. And I want us to be reminded of that here. So having talked a little bit about the nature of and importance of fellowship, I want us to look at three fellowship group essentials. All right? This is on the other side of your little half sheet. These are biblical priorities... That we need to continue to strive to live out in our fellowship groups all the more. And whenever you have these conversations or these teaching times, people, many people will say, well, are you saying that we're not doing this? Yeah, to some extent. But to another extent, I'm saying that we, we are doing this in many ways, and we need to excel still more. Isn't that what Paul said to, to, said to the Thessalonian believers in, in, in 1 Thessalonians 4? Verse 1 and verse 10, he commends them and he affirms them for their obedience and their following after the will of God. But he says in chapter 4, verses 1 and 10, but excel still more. We're always growing. We're always in a process of growing, are we not? 
So that's why we want to see these again. Not because you've never heard these things before, but because we need to make sure that we're zeroing in on the basics. On the basics. And what we need to be about in our fellowship groups. Our fellowship groups should lead to growth and maturity in our Christian lives. Just as a, a little human being is expected to grow physically, so a Christian in God's Word is expected to grow spiritually. We might, we might halt that growth by our disobedience, by not pursuing uh, discipline and the pursuit of Christ to get to know Him. We might halt that growth. We might be growing in baby steps or in great strides. But the Bible expects you to grow. 2 Peter 3.18 says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4.15, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. God expects us to grow. Spiritual growth and maturity is to be pursued in the Christian life. But listen to me. We have interesting ways of defining Christian maturity and growth in our, in our evangelical cultures. So I want to tell you what maturity and growth, genuine maturity and growth in the Christian life is not. In our day and age, we need to be very, very careful. This growth and maturity does not mean that you are more moral or you're a better person now, five years after becoming a believer. We didn't come to Christ with anything to offer Him. We came to Christ bankrupt. Amen? Offering our sin, pleading for the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God. And that is the way that we are called to live throughout the rest of our lives. Bankrupt. You want to test your maturity. Don't talk about how, how you have greater morals now or you're a better person. Talk about how more God-dependent you are. How more aware of your sin you are. So it doesn't have to do with moralism or personal improvement, becoming a better person. It doesn't mean that people who know a lot of information are mature people. Christian maturity or growth does not mean people who know a lot of facts, who can spew out verses left and right. Head knowledge does not translate into wise, biblical, skillful living whereby we make right choices that glorify Christ, right? So it doesn't mean just head knowledge. Listen to me. Mark it. Growth and maturity in the Christian life has to do with conformity to Christ. At the very basic level. We are in a process of becoming conformed into the image of Jesus. That's what sanctification means. It is a process of becoming more and more like Christ. And I want you to write some of these verses down. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Romans 8.28-29 there in verse 29, Paul tells us that God predestined us to become conformed to the image of His Son. Colossians 1, 28-29, Paul says, We proclaim Him, and from verse 27, that is Christ. We proclaim Christ. How do we do that? Admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. With what result, Paul? So that we may present every man complete or mature in Christ. See that? And for this reason I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. 
So Christ is the energizer of growth and maturity has to do with being conformed into the image of Christ. And this is an endless process. That's why Paul says to the Thessalonians, excel still more. Keep growing, Thessalonians. Keep growing. Listen, it has to do with being like Jesus. And we have to put some substance behind that. But don't ever forget, don't ever forget that it's about being like Christ. I just read a testimony a few months ago from a pastor of a church who writes totally grieving because there was a young lady who showed up to their church for, uh, for a few months and she was, by, by people's testimony, she was a genuine believer. But this church had the tendency, had very legalistic tendencies and a, lot of, and a tendency to impose a lot of substandards in the life of that church. And that girl became so discouraged by the constant... Uh, um, confronting of people in that church that she ended up committing suicide. Now that is an extreme case. That is an extreme case. But this girl, by the testimony of people, she she loved the Lord. She was trying to live life pleasing the Lord. But there are the, there were these substandards constantly being imposed upon her. And she was trying to set her life up to be like everybody else, to look like this cookie-cut Christian. Beloved, spiritual growth has to do with becoming like Jesus. And to the extent that you are an example and you're pursuing Christ, then people are going to imitate your faith. To the extent that you follow Christ, yes, I want to imitate you. Right? But when you deviate from that, I need to keep my eyes on who? On the Lord Jesus. Are you more and more like Jesus? It's not about moralism or personal self-improvement. It's about becoming more and more like Christ. And what is the instrument by which we become more and more like Christ? The primary means of our Christian growth is the Word of God. Amen? The Word of God. This is the primary instrument by which God grows and matures us by His Spirit. This is the sword of the Spirit of God. This is why in all everything that we do here at Calvary, I'm so thankful for our church. In everything that we do, we try to emphasize teaching, teaching, teaching. The Word of God. Exposure to the Word of God. The Word of God must never cease to be taught. Amen? Never. I heard somebody a few years ago outside of this church say, you know what? The problem with conservative churches is that they are all about teaching, teaching, teaching and not enough community. And I said, you know what? My answer to that was, the problem is not, brother, teaching, teaching, teaching. The problem is not with the Word of God. The problem is with us not applying the Word of God so as to love one another in action. That's the problem. The problem is with our wicked hearts, our disobedient hearts. The Word of God must never be taught. We will never stop teaching at Calvary Bible Church. Amen? We will never stop exposing one another to the Word of God because of the deceitfulness of sin. So in our preaching, in our teaching, in our small groups, in our one-on-ones, in informal personal gatherings that you're going to have with others, make sure that the Word of God, you keep speaking the Word of God into each other's lives. Amen? We will never stop doing that. Why? Because it is, it is, the Word of God is a, is a convicting sword. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. And notice, for the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as a division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from His sight. 
But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. The Word of God, it searches the soul. Right? The Word of God in the hands of the Spirit convicts. It's a skillful surgeon upon the heart of a sinner and cuts through hidden sin. We need to constantly be devoted to the Word and never stop teaching it. Never. The Word of God is sufficient. Turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Okay? 2 Timothy chapter 3. I want to show you why we should treasure the Word of God. Why we should treasure the Word of God. Second Timothy 3, and we'll start in verse 14. Notice the sufficiency of the Word of God. You, however, Paul writing to Timothy, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings. There's the Scriptures. The sacred writings which are able... Here's where we, where we get the, the whole idea of the sufficiency of the Word of God, the power of the Word of God. You have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. The Word of God is sufficient because it is able to save. It is able to convict a sinner. No matter how profound that sinner's uh, 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 wickedness might be, the Word of God is able to... to, to Bring that, point, that person to the point of conviction where they see themselves unworthy before a holy God. See? To raise a sinner from spiritual death. That's what James means in James 1.14 when he says, In the exercise of His will, of God's will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. That's the gospel. So the word of God is sufficient to save. But if that wasn't enough... Notice that the Word of God is able, sufficient, to sanctify us, to make us more and more like Christ, to make us more holy. Look at verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God. This is the idea of of expired by God. God breathed out. It originates from God. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. That's the idea of beneficial or useful. Useful for what, Paul? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So the Word of God, the Scriptures, which come from Almighty God, are beneficial, beloved, for growth and maturity. Righteousness is the upright behavior from the heart that pleases the Lord, if you are a believer, that gives Him glory. The Scriptures are beneficial for growth and maturity in in righteousness. And look at verse 17. With what result? So that the man of God or woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. These are beautiful words here. Adequate means equipped or capable for any demand or requirement. And this word equipped means proficient for any good work. Both words have to do with equipping you for Christian service. In other words, the scriptures, when taught and appropriated into your life, equip you to be a godly man and a godly woman who is able to perform any type of good work. Amen? That is a beautiful thing. What a resource in the Word of God. What a resource. How many of you want to please the Lord and want to be useful for service? This verse tells me that the Word of God, when practically applied to your life as a believer, is more than able to equip you and I for all manner of service within our giftedness. In the words of 2 Peter 1 through, we have everything that pertains to life and godliness in God's Word, beloved. Everything. We have everything that we need. 
And as you think about your involvement in your particular fellowship group, is the spiritual growth and maturity of your fellow brothers and sisters a priority for you? Is it a priority? Not only your shepherds or your under-shepherds, but yourself. Are you striving to help others grow by means of the Word of God and by means, as we will talk next week, in terms of life-on-life relationships? Is that your commitment? Are you using your spiritual gifts and abilities to spur on others to maturity? So our priority in these fellowships must be to help each other grow and mature spiritually because of this beautiful partnership that we have that is rooted in the gospel. All right? And we're going to wrap it up there. But next week, we're going to get into uh, uh, fellowship group essentials number two and three and then bring some of these, uh, summarize these a little bit for us in a helpful manner. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your church, the bride of Christ. We thank you for bringing us into this family, into this holy temple in the Lord. We thank you that our fellowship is more profound and more deep than we even realize. It is rooted in the gospel and this vibrant, growing relationship that we have with you and with one another. And it finds expression, Lord in our interaction with one another, in this mutual sharing of lives together, this participating in one another's lives, whereby we are caring for one another, we are encouraging one another, primarily by means of your word and prayer, Lord, with the goal of becoming more and more like your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to keep that in mind, Father. Help us to cherish one another, to treasure one another, to, be, to strive to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace all the more that you have already established for us. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.